in kosher, given the problem with lung adhesions, and as I've already mentioned, the fact that hindquarter is very difficult to process, a great deal of meat coming out of a dedicated kosher facility will be sold on the regular market. And so you have, in the numbers I've been given at times, is about 70% of the meat coming out of the plant is not being sold as kosher. Welcome to MeatsPad, a platform dedicated to sharing breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the meats industry. These discussions help foster and improve communication and knowledge dissemination within the meat science community. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the National Provisioner, Fisco Fan, the Casing Company, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, Dry Age Pro, makes dry aging in-house flexible, safe, and affordable. The mission of USMEF is to increase the value and profitability of the U.S. beef, pork, and lamb industries by enhancing demand for their products and export markets through a dynamic partnership of all stakeholders. Hello, me folks. Welcome back to the Meat Spider Podcast. My name is Francisco Nahar, and today we have an amazing episode. Um, we had some uh, questions from from our audience and asking about uh, religious slaughter. And today we have also Dr. Bass back on the Meatspot podcast. So this is going to be a very interesting episode. I just want to take a moment and tell everyone if you guys have any questions, all those small and mid-sized processors out there that that listen to this podcast, um, follow us on social media, on Instagram or LinkedIn, Facebook. We... We're doing our best to address all those questions that you guys ask. And uh, so we had this question from a meat processor about religious slaughter. Uh, we have an expert today. He's a, a to-go person when we talk about religious slaughter. Before we start, welcome Dr. Bass. How are you today? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here in this conversation. This is an area... Um, uh, when we get to our guests, this is, this is an area that's always been one of a bit of a mystery for me, to be honest. Um, I've taken meat science classes. I've done my best to try to better understand, um, uh, ritual slaughter, um, uh, religious slaughter, but it's time that we bring an expert into the conversation. And this, like Francisco was saying, is uh, it, it, this was initiated by questions from our listeners, and, and we're grateful for that. That's exactly what we need to be having. We, this, is, this is a back-and-forth dialogue. Um, and so I'd love to introduce Dr. Joe Regenstein, an emeritus faculty, still teaching, by the way, but an, American, an emeritus faculty uh, in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell University. Dr. Regenstein, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here and looking forward to it. Yeah. So, so um, for the listeners out there, sometimes we have a little bit of dialogue before the record button is, is pressed. And I, I assure you, there is an awful lot of information I would love to garner from Dr. Regenstein. But I think we need to really just kind of focus on the question that came from our listener, and um, it was it was mostly around kosher and halal slaughter. We have our expert here. Um, first and foremost, Dr. Regenstein, can you can you kind of just define religious slaughter in the United States, in North America, and maybe internationally for that matter, and some of the factors that 
we need to be accounting for? Sure, let me try to start and frame this. Um, Jews keep a set of dietary laws called kosher. Muslims keep a set of dietary laws called halal. That means that in general, they are concerned with and pay attention to the foods they're eating. In both cases, a major focus of the law is how one slaughters animals, in particular mammals and birds. Fish are in both cases handled somewhat separately. I spent my career working with fish, but right now we'll focus on meat and poultry. The key for traditional slaughter, that is in both religions, the slaughter of an animal is done with a very sharp knife with a, generally speaking for most animals, a horizontal cut across the neck to cut the esophagus, trachea, carotids, and jugulars. So you're trying to cut all of the different pipes that are used to buy an animal to get from its head to other parts of the body. And that knife in Jewish, in kosher slaughter is highly specified and highly standardized. There are real standards. For Muslims, they are told to do a sharp cut with the knife, with a sharp knife. And then in both cases, the animal is permitted to bleed out and no other activity can be done on the animal just as would be for secular slaughter. Um, and then in the case of Muslim meat, the Muslim religious involvement is essentially finished. So the processing of the meat after that slaughter by a traditionally Muslim slaughterman, and we, if we have time, we might look at a few of the important exceptions, is finished. In the case of kosher, a whole series of post-slaughter processing events take place. The first event is an inspection of the lungs, which is done first in situ, which means that when you are opening up a cow or a sheep, um, you can't remove all of the innards. You leave the lung and the heart. The inspector puts his hand into the lung cavity and tries to see if he can freely move around. In many cases, he can't. And that indicates that there are what are called lung adhesions, which are connections either between lobes of the lung and between the lung and the wall. And if those are found, they need to be dealt with in terms of determining if they have sufficient impact when gently removed that the lung is intact or not. So after the lung is removed, it is re-examined often by the same person in bigger plants, it would be two separate people, 
who would remove these lung adhesions and then would blow up the lung and put it in a tub of water the way you would do it with an old tire bike tube and looks for air bubbles. And if there are air bubbles, the meat is not acceptable. And in modern times, because that process is slow, in many cases, as a practical matter, if there are two or three of these, they do that. If there are more, um, they simply say, from the point of view of some of the organizations, this meat is no longer acceptable. And that leads to a category of meat called glot kosher. And so many plants will operate under glot kosher rules. Others will operate under ordinary kosher rules, which allows for more lung adhesions. After that, the animals put in the cooler. The following day, usually, the first step would be to remove the sciatic nerve and all a collection, I shouldn't say all, a collection of blood vessels where blood accumulates. Because one of the whole points of both kosher and halal slaughter is the removal of blood, which is the life fluid and needs to be treated with respect. So those are then removed and that's a very labor intensive process. And in terms of the hindquarter on cattle will kind of destroy some of the wonderful cuts in the hindquarter. So as a practical matter, that meat is often moved into the secular trade. Following that, either at the plant or at a processing plant or in a butcher shop or in the home, which happens very rarely these days. I ended up, when I was a graduate student, probably buying from one of the last butcher shops that did not salt and soak and salt their meat. So I actually learned to do it. But the meat within three days of slaughter is soaked for half an hour in lukewarm, lukewarm water, not super cold, not super hot salted with coarse salt for an hour, completely covered. And the salt is specifically designed to not dissolve in an hour, but not fall off. And of course, many modern consumers watching all the TV shows doing cooking hear constant reference to kosher salt. Most salt is kosher. The kosher salt is actually the grain size for the salt industry that they use when they're asked to provide salt for that process. And each of the big salt companies, it's a slightly different grain size. But it's but it's um, coarser, so it it doesn't it doesn't dissolve within that wow. short time frame that was designed for kosher process. That is so fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a one hour under normal circumstances, and then it has to be rinsed three times, um, and those are quick rinses. And so um, there is that processing. After that, the meat is ready for use. A few cuts have special problems. The heart itself has to be cut open and any coagulated blood removed. And the liver, which of course processes the blood and is part of the circulatory system, has to be uh, broiled. So it is broiled and it has to be broiled in a dedicated broiler. So again, you have this much more complex set of rules. And the person who can slaughter is a 
religiously approved person with real training, both in religious issues and in the practical aspect. Again, the, one of the differences is in halal is that, and listen carefully, any sane man or woman can slaughter an animal and is taught to do it. But again, of course, the training is mostly parent to child or some relative. I mean, it's done in the community. I mean, many Muslims are very comfortable with slaughter, which is, again, a cultural difference from everybody else. The Jews, Jewish people, most Jewish people, because only very select people are allowed to do this, are as removed from slaughter as most Americans are. My Muslim students, when I talk about these things, are totally not concerned because almost all of them have been exposed as part of growing up to slaughter. And not only can they, but somebody in the family is supposed to slaughter really a sheep of at least a half a year old twice a year for the two what are called Eid festivals. So again, in the Muslim community, one of the challenges we have in the United States is that many of them would like to have a place where they can properly slaughter an animal and legally slaughter an animal, which is not always easy um, I know that some of our students in some years have gone out into the woods and slaughtered a sheep. That's not how we want to do it. And one of the challenges and one of the opportunities is to provide that kind of facility for, for the Muslim people just after Ramadan. It's the festival right after Ramadan. So they fasted for a month and now they're celebrating. And the other is three months later which is hosting the holiday to celebrate Ibrahim, which of course is the Arabic word for Abraham, mm -hmm. and his almost slaughter of his firstborn son, Ishmael, which in scripture is taught as the binding of Isaac. In the Muslim tradition, it is the almost sacrifice of Ishmael, who was in fact Abraham's first son, even though it was not by an official marriage. Thank you, Dr. Ragenstein, for for this. This is a lot of information, and and again, and uh, it's amazing to me how it's all connected to scripture. I mean, how Muslims and Jews they go about slaughtering and, and just harvesting beef. I think this is this is a uh, good to know. I mean, this is a the good thing about the meat industry. The good thing about just educating ourselves about what's out there. Um, and I'm sure a lot of us, a lot of uh, our listeners have just, even if you're a consumer, that you talk about, okay, this is a kosher type of uh, meat product, what's in it? Or why is it called kosher halal? Um, and then I just have a, a one follow-up, and I'm sure Dr. Bass has plenty of follow-ups with you here here in a minute, but I had a call from a beef producer. Um, he He's up in New Jersey. Okay, I'm going to go all kosher, but he was telling me about what you said, about like not all of his animals were meeting these requirements. Um, so he was telling me like maybe 25, 30% of the animals were only accepted um, just to be, to be kosher. Would you please tell us what happens to those carcasses that don't meet those requirements? Maybe you can tell us about just generally about a proportion. I mean... Out of 100 
hundred head of cattle that go in uh, onto a uh, kosher facility, how many of them generally are going to be accepted or not? Um, just I don't know. That's just going back to that question, and maybe we can elaborate more on that. Yeah, now, I understand the question, and I want to make a big distinction. First of all, generally speaking, if the animal is healthy and would pass what is equivalent to anti-mortem inspection by a USDA FSIS inspector, Muslims are fine with the animal. There are a few exceptions, but basically they take the animal, slaughter it, and then return it to the USDA FSIS or the state inspector in states where there's state inspection. So they don't really accept, reject animals very often. In kosher, given the problem with lung adhesions, and as I've already mentioned, the fact that hindquarter is very difficult to process, a great deal of meat coming out of a dedicated kosher facility will be sold on the regular market. And so you have, in the numbers I've been given at times, is about 70% of the meat coming out of the plant is not being sold as kosher. So there's a large movement of kosher meat into the secular market. That had some interesting ramifications. And again, I see this kind of cycling back as we move to more um, choice and prime and less select. Historically, because of the three days that one had to one had to kosher meat, slaughterhouses were near the big cities where there was a Jewish population. The hindquarter is the more valuable part of the meat. And so what would happen is that if you went to Tavern on the Green in New York Central Park or any of the really ritzy restaurants in New York City and ordered a typical hindquarter meat, it was probably killed kosher because, again, because Jews are only using front quarter, they are willing, in most cases, to accept choice and prime, even when everybody else was pushing select. Now, I see the pendulum has swung back again, and our amount of prime and, and choice is way up, and our select is way down. I, I can remember times when the report said 4% of beef slaughtered was prime. So it's, it's one of those interesting pendulums. Yeah. Now, one of the things we're working on is the concept of having a Muslim present when kosher slaughter is taking place. On the religious side, the person doing the slaughter does a personal blessing on the Jewish side while he's beginning the process, somewhere in the early stage. He does it, and if he kills a batch of animals, all of them are covered by the blessing. Muslims want to have a blessing said over every animal. The most preferred method is obviously that the slaughtermen say the blessing. Alternatively, somebody standing nearby can say the blessing and when people start stretching things, um, the person saying the blessing can be in the air-conditioned room 
looking out on the plant. And I've seen that in New Zealand when I visited a sheep works. Um, and what is used sometimes, but is generally not really accepted is having a tape recorder say the blessing constantly. However, there is a Quranic verse and remember Muslims uses their primary text, the Quran, rather than scripture. The Quran is a re-recitation of scripture. It parallels scripture very well. And the, the most mentioned person in, in Quran is Moses. So this is not an alternate reality. It is a re reciting of scripture to get it quote, right, because it had gotten corrupted by 600 in the common era. So um, they do consider allowing a Christian or Jew or other people of the book. And there are one or two minor sects in Israel that are people of the book who keep some part of traditional scripture. Um, they, in theory, can slaughter an animal for Muslims. And so we have talked to both sides. And actually, at one point, I was able to arrange for meat to be killed by a Jewish slaughterman with a Muslim basically holding his hand on the slaughterman's body as one approach. And for others, the, the Jewish slaughterman who's called a shochet actually said the prayer, which is Bismillah Allah Akbar, God is great. It is not an offensive prayer for Muslim, for Christians or Jews. Allah is very definitely the same God as the God of Christians and Jews. And so the, the, the Jewish slaughterman and also can be authorized to say the blessing with a witness from the Muslim community. What that means is that then all that 70% of the meat can in theory be moved into the Muslim community as halal meat, which generally gets a minor premium. Halal meat will get a small premium Kosher meat being moved into the secular trade usually gets a slight penalty because it's only part and it's special handling and so forth. So um, instead of a small penalty, one can get a small premium. Kosher meat itself, because of all these rules and extra handling, is significantly more expensive. Now, on the small processor and on farm, the issues are first of all for on farm, is it allowed in your state? Secondly, one needs to think about how to do this humanely in terms of just handling the animal and arranging for a safe way to slaughter with a sharp knife, with a moving, with an animal that has not been intervene prior to the cutting. So we're dealing with a live animal. Um, and and I've, some 
some farms, and I know of some here in New York, have set up places where, um, in particular, a Muslim can do something like sheep slaughter. And there's a real desire for it, and there's a real market. For small processing plants, again, halal slaughter is viable if one has access to a Muslim slaughterman who can be any practicing Muslim. Getting kosher slaughter organized is difficult. And we have cases, we do have what I call itinerant shochtim, slaughtermen who have been trained and occasionally will do a religious slaughter for one or other special occasions, which takes some arranging, but it also has the risk when you're doing that, that the animal may not be kosher. If it has certain internal problems or has the adhesions that when they come off the lung is not acceptable, the entire animal becomes kosher. And, and that's again, one of the big differences, but it's one of the reasons there are many, not many, but there's certainly a collection of non-Jews who buy kosher meat, because if there are any kind of blemish, which the government permits you to cut off. So if you have a large area of bruising on a carcass, USDA permits you to cut it off. The rabbis will reject that entirely. So there is a, at the same time, I want to make it very clear, USDA will reject animals that the rabbis would not have rejected because of modern knowledge of, of animal disease and animal issues. So again, one of the benefits of kosher meat for a secular audience is that you have two inspections with different rules the kosher is a rejection. And in most cases in modern times, nobody sells unsalted and soaked meat traditionally. And if you wanna do a roast or a chicken, for example, um, many people find that it's more tasty having been salted and the salt has a little time to penetrate. On the other hand, steaks can be a real problem. They don't necessarily do well being pre-salted. So again, there are some interesting marketing opportunities for farmers um, to particularly serve the Muslim community. It's a lot harder to serve the Jewish community. I, I love that, <clears throat> that we're trying to integrate as many different marketing aspects as possible to fully utilize the life of this animal, the, 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 the body of this animal that, that, and, and, and it's always important to try to make sure that we're fully utilizing our resources. Um, you know, I, I, I explain to my class usually in my minuscule amount of knowledge on, on the subject is that kosher is going to be our most technical and, and have probably the most amount of re regulations and oversight. Muslim uh, halal is going to bring in its own aspect, but allow for a bit more flexibility. And then there's the remainder that um, that that the majority of commercial 
meat in the United States is going to fall under, under the secular category, as you've mentioned. And now, a little break. Since 1883, Ultrasource has been a trusted supplier to the food industry. Ultrasource provides superior kill floor, processing, packaging, and labeling equipment and operational supplies. I love the historical background that you're providing. I mean, how 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 much more historical can we be back to just the, the beginning of some of our civil, civilizations and the, the majority of the world's um, uh, uh, religious background um, connected to the the meat processing and and the food processing that we're looking at here a question i want to ask you real quick dr regenstein um actually there's two okay and there i shouldn't i shouldn't ask two unrelated questions but i'm gonna do it anyway okay oh, um, no, no, <laughs> no, we're, we're both professors we both right. understand this right. of <laughs> how many different tangents can we have at once so um so number one, you've mentioned um, we're harvesting these animals without intervening. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that because there are listeners out there that maybe are less under understanding of, especially the coaster tradition and how we're, we're harvesting animals, um, doing it correctly, but without a stunning process. And then the other is what animals fall under kosher and halal traditionally? And, and I'm just going to throw this out there. There's probably not a lot of kosher ham available is that right um that's a funny story all by itself I <laughs> okay mean, a, a, a proper ham no but um when turkey ham first came about um the rabbis who were certifying the product as kosher for the kosher turkey slaughter wouldn't let them call it turkey ham they had to call it smoked turkey thigh okay so <laughs> We, we do sometimes run into vocabulary. I realize that's a point I hadn't really focused on. First of all, both religions prohibit the pig. Mm -hmm. And that in commercial practice is really the most important. For the Jews, interestingly enough, it's because it's a monogastric and many other animals are prohibited. And even if you look at Hebrew scripture, which by the way, is a term I used because I know most of you would use Old Testament, but as a Jew, we don't believe in the New Testament, so how can we have an Old Testament? Right. <laughs> we use Hebrew and Christian scripture. So in the Hebrew scripture, it lists a bunch of animals that are not kosher, and it's based on the fact that kosher animals have a split hoof and chew their cud. So cow, sheep, goats, are all acceptable. The birds are more complicated. As a practical matter, the major commercial birds are all kosher. Okay. Um, the interesting one from that point of view is the camel. The camel is a ruminant. It has a sort of split hoof. And what do I mean by that? Is the hoof has webbing in between the two, in, in the split, because this is an animal that needs to walk on sand. Mm -hmm. And so the Jews have defined that as not a proper split hoof. Muslims accept essentially non-carnivorous animals. So the camel is accepted. It has to be killed in a different way. And that's highly technical. I don't think we need to cover it today. But you should be aware you don't kill it the way I will explain to answer question one when I circle back to it. Um, the other one is rabbit. Rabbit would not be kosher. It is definitely 
eaten by Muslims. Mm -hmm. The question of horse meat, which is definitely not kosher, is a bit of an issue in the Muslim community. There are many interpretations and the range of, of, of decisions. And again, one of the things one has to realize if one gets involved commercially is there are differences of opinion on in both religions on some of the details. And so you can't just kill kosher or kill halal and assume everybody who's Jewish or everybody who's Muslim who maintains dietary laws will actually accept that product. So again, there are differences. On the bird side, the big difference is that the Jews do not accept the rat tree category, ostrich, emu, kiwi, and the Muslims do. Going back now to the slaughter, once you have a kosher animal, we use a knife with that horizontal cut and we do not intervene with stunning. And the idea being that, and particularly on the kosher side, that knife is extremely sharp. And what's more important and what is often missed by the animal welfare scientists is that between every usage of the knife on a large animal and every two or three animals on a small animals, and if there's a, the knife is checked before and after. And if there's a problem after, either the animal that was just killed, or if you've done a few animals, the, all of them become non-kosher automatically. And that knife has to be nick free. And that nick is very important. Because if you think about cutting across the neck, you think about people slashing their wrist with a razor blade versus a dull knife or a nick knife, it is the nicks that catch on the skin and cause the pain sensation. And as Temple says, when done right, the animal moved more when the knife non-blade was put to their neck, to, just to, as a comparison, moved just as much as when the knife came. The knife is so sharp that animals that are calm and properly handled going into the restraining pen. And of course you need a much more complex restraining pen for these systems will in fact, under normal circumstances expire quietly. And there is even some postulate and it's very much a postulate, not been proven, not been properly tested that that actually leads to endorphin release because we know anecdotally when people have tried to slit their wrists, wrists, that when they were revived by the EMTs, they talked about very positive mental activity as opposed to, oh, thank God you saved me because this was horrible. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there's, there's endorphin issues to be dealt with. And again, the key is the very sharp knife and what's been interesting and has not been used in any papers I've seen yet is there is now a piece of equipment out of New Zealand that will test the sharpness of a knife and can probably pick up the nicks. Our preliminary data, and we have one set of data that we did with that company here in Ithaca that in fact, one can get rid of the nicks. 
And so the key, and that's a large part of the Shulchit's training, is how to maintain, how to get and maintain and check that the knife is nick free. And so that's a very important part of the animal welfare of this situation. The other piece of this is that like any system, things can go wrong. And one of the issues has been when things go wrong, they can be bad. And what we have gotten most of the responsible slaughterhouses to accept is that if an animal has not collapsed, which is a sign that they're unconscious, within somewhere around 40 to 50 seconds, and we can argue exact time, but in that time span, if the animal is not unconscious, then one ought to intervene. So when some of the so-called animal welfare literature talks about um, how long it takes till the animal is unconscious, it's fascinating how some of these people only will tell you we had cases where it took four minutes. Well, if it took that long, somebody should have intervened before. I mean, Temple's data with good slaughter, Temple, I believe her data for cattle, which is the hardest animal to bring down because they have some blood vessels in the back of their head, so they bleed out a little bit slower, is 10 to 33 seconds with 17 seconds being the average. That's reasonable amount of time for the animal to expire or become unconscious. Um, over a minute is criminal in my mind. Well, right. And you, and, and to your point that if, I mean, any, any process could have, have something go wrong. And so it is, it's important that we do have that oversight, but I, I, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to go to a, a slaughterhouse that has these chilchets working and, and it is fascinating to see just how much precision and and technicalities are involved and and in in this particular case it was a lamb uh, harvesting facility there were two um shohets there regularly changing knives and, and inspecting the knives and 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 in, an amazing calmness that goes along and I, I and i recall at some point uh dr temple grandin who who we, we've been referencing here amazing world famous animal uh, behavioralist uh, mentions how when done correctly, as you're saying, Dr. Regenstein, these animals essentially go into shock almost immediately. But again, everything has to work. They're sort of expiring calmly. Again, yeah. vocabulary here is not well developed. Right. But again, done well, and, and the number of failures is probably a little less than plants. I mean, one of Temple's big activities has been taking regular plants, which under the North American Meat Institute guidelines, which she essentially wrote, allows a 5% failure rate on stunning. Now, that rate has come down to below 2% in the big plants, but those are still animals when misstunned, you also have a bad situation. And again, the some of the literature is comparing apples and oranges. I mean, what you want is a really good secular kill and a really good religious kill if you're going to do comparisons. And the Europeans are big on comparisons. Temple is mostly looking at how do we make what is better. 
whether that be secular or religious. And that's one of the big differences in my mind between the animal welfare research community in America. They're looking at what is and saying, how do we make it better? How do we train people better? How do we manage it better? How do we improve equipment? Europeans, unfortunately, often are doing the research to prove that some form of slaughter, whether it be kosher, halal, or some other form of slaughter is unacceptable. So they have, a, in a sense, start with a different goal. And again, if you know what you're doing, you can pick a bad plant and compare it to a good plant in either direction. And I've also seen religious literature that picks the good religious plant and carefully picks a bad secular plant. Again, very hard to do these comparisons in a way that is really apples and apples, because you need, again, as Temple has beaten into all of us, you want a calm animal, you need to have the animal socialized to humans. If you're going to see humans in the slaughterhouse, you got to you know, keep the metal chains from clanging and the light working. And so you've got to use the same mechanical system, which I don't think anybody has ever actually properly done, with one exception, um, colleague, uh, Muslim colleague in the UK, his parents owned the facility and he's the plant manager. So when it came to doing the experiments, he just took a day and did the experiments with witnesses, did it right because he could control it and they used his plant to do both secular and religious slaughter. So it, it, it can be done scientifically if you have the right circumstances. Great. No, thank you, Dr. Egginson, again for for our time. This is a whole lot of information, as Dr. Baz mentioned. Um, and as you said, I mean, the, the comparison is very important because even within, we talk about the meat industry in the U.S. or any given country. I mean, even within the same company, we have uh, different packing plants, and we may find differences in terms of quality even within the same company. So it's a, So it's good to point this out. So when we talk about genetics in cattle, I mean, we can maybe, I'm not sure how um, familiar you are with um, genetics or which genetics are better for uh, kosher or halal, um, just to to just to pass all these requirements that we talk about with the lungs. And maybe you can talk about that and maybe like just holistically, a uh, what are some of the benefits of going Let's say I'm a farmer and I want to go, hey, I'm going to get more. The compensation, we know that the monetary compensation, it's higher when we go for kosher. One of the projects I'm working on is actually the first ever ground up design plant for kosher and halal slaughter, which Temple is involved in also. And what they are prepared to do is to work with the farmers to grow cattle choice and prime. So we're talking about steers, mostly in the Angus and that type of category. Uh, I'm not an expert on breeds, so forgive me if I get that piece wrong. And the idea being that they will work with these farmers with the idea of significantly increasing the number of animals that are glot kosher and thereby being able to pay a premium. Because remember, to, as a, to keep the math simple, if half of your animals are 100% not kosher and only half of your animals are kosher, 
That means the cost of the plant, the shochets, the people inspecting the lungs, the people doing the soaking and salting, all of those special tasks, their labor costs are not their labor cost, it's their cost has to be put on half the animals, many of these labor costs, which jacks up the price. So if you can have a higher success rate, particularly from the slaughter side where you can't bypass it at all, then the price of kosher meat goes down. And so some of that, pre, some of that benefit can be passed on to the farmer. So the plan for the program is to work with the farmers in terms of the right animals in the right environment with the right feeding and management. And we believe that we can significantly, by an order of magnitude, we're not talking significant in our scientific tests where you know a two percent difference and in poultry that makes a difference in feed efficiency yes that's big money we're talking about going from let's say 30 percent kosher animals to 60 percent kosher animals which is really huge significant yeah. and so yes there is opportunity where you have a kosher slaughter plant that you can work with and this would all be um custom you know uh contract excuse me the word uh, contract packers growers so that in fact the quality of the animal their health records and again doing that we also know that as we monitor these animals more intensely we will have a better idea of what works and one of the projects i did work with we never got it published unfortunately is with ultrasound we can tell a number of animals that have lung adhesions. We cannot do it 100%, but we can also screen animals for lung adhesions. So with ultrasound, you can begin to do that. And again, in the experimental mode, working with farmers who are part of your contract team, we can do it at different stages in the life cycle and see where these problems are coming in for those animals that are, and also work with the universities with other animals who may not be under our strict regimens to see where they're getting the problems and begin to do more work to understand where in the various stages these lung adhesions occur. Now, one interesting set of data which I've seen is that Animals with lung adhesions actually average in a long-term study in a slaughterhouse, average a little bit lighter in weight. They are less feed efficient. They come in at a lower weight on average. So in fact, in addition to the religious issue, there is actually not a great deal, but there is some benefit if we learn and we can manage it without a great deal of expense of actually managing some of these issues to keep the animals healthier. So there is also that potential benefit of working with understanding this lung adhesion issue, which is the dominant concern of the post-mortem post inspection of cattle for kosher. Great. Now, before we let you go, we'd like to ask you about your background. What what sparked your interest in this 
religious slaughter. We're really interested in knowing more about your background and how you ended up being an expert in this topic. Well, and in the animal science group, this is actually a fun story. Um, when I came to, well, I grew up with some farm experience, even though I grew up in a big city. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, but my aunt had a chicken farm and my mother during World War II had worked on a dairy farm. And so we would go for vacation on the dairy farm. And when I was a little bit older, like nine to through high school, I worked summers on a poultry farm. So I started the world with a little bit of farm experience. Uh, I came to Cornell as a new faculty member after earning a degree in biophysics of muscle contraction, strictly from the medical point of meat and muscle or muscle, which I had to translate to become meat when I came to Cornell in the poultry science department. Part of my first responsibilities was to teach in the meat science course to do the poultry fish, poultry and fish lectures, because by then our group was already working with fish. And I, when I joined, it was already involved in both fish and poultry. So I gave those two lectures and the professor in that class had a lecture on kosher. And obviously I didn't go to every class, but I didn't know a lot of meat science. So I did go to most of the classes and I was obviously not gonna miss his kosher talk. At that time, it was, a, from my point of view, it was a marvelous talk. It was all those details about slaughter that I knew existed, but nobody had ever taught me that because nobody in Newark, New Jersey wants to teach that. And so I went and I looked at the class and I looked at those students and they had the blankest looks on their face. The professor introduced the topic with, there are people who are Jewish, they have a special way of handling and killing animals, and this is what they do. And he jumped into the details with no framing of it as part of a bigger religious picture. And so I said something, which I should learn better. I said <laughs> something to him at the end of the lecture. Um, and he said, that's all I know. I know the details. He says, why don't you do the lecture next year? And from that, it has just been an explosion. As a non-tenured professor, I tried to get a publication out. So I wrote something for IFT's Food Technology. And that like opened all sorts of doors. And after that, it just exploded and has just gone in all kinds of directions. That professor, by the way, is a American Meat Science Association member, Jim Stover, who has spent his career doing ultrasounds. So late in life, after he's retired and I'm retired, we did the work on the ultrasound together. So we've, he's also stayed in Ithaca, is, was pretty much active until a year or two ago. And so um, I always blame him for it. It's all his fault. And so we worked on fish most of my career. And in the last part of my career, we merged the fish and the kosher halal with work on fish gelatin, which is a wonderful thing to work on because it's a byproduct from fisheries. So it's, it's also environmentally good thing to do. It's a protein in my academic 
training is as a protein chemist. So that, and the market for, for fish gelatin, because it has challenges, is that it is the cheapest and often only source of gelatin for Muslims and Jews and for products that are kosher and halal. And it is probably the one, it is a very, it's a, it's a ingredient used in large quantities. I mean, in the food industry, there are ingredients where if you can sell a 50 pound bag once a week, you can, you can, you can make enough profit to survive on that. But this is something that's moved in tons. And so fish gelatin has begun to take about one or 2% of the market, but it has made possible some interesting kosher and halal products that were not otherwise available. So that's how my career ended, pulling everything together. Before I retired, I did make life not miserable, but I'll use the term miserable for my chair. I wouldn't allow myself to be retired officially until our dairy plant uh, went kosher. We had a new building, new dairy plant, uh, and it was agreed that we would take it kosher. So I think Cornell has the only kosher processing plant on a university campus, probably in the world, for ice cream at least, because I don't think the Israeli schools have ice cream factories on their campuses. <laughs> well, your impact in in the food world is is pretty clear dr regenstein and um you know anyone that's out there and and wants to look up um uh dr regenstein's background it's not just meat it's 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 in all kosher and halal food categories um and when you say you've ended your career clearly you haven't you've just stopped getting paid regularly for doing the work apparently and so um we we all applaud you we appreciate this time um this is extremely valuable for everyone that's out there um clearly there's a lot that goes into back to the matter at hand um, kosher and halal um, uh, 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 harvesting and and the processing of the meats and um, I I just continue to encourage our listeners to to go out and learn more. There's always more to learn. Um, and uh, and prior to our time here together, um, I I had to ask Dr. Regenstein, how do you pronounce your name? And uh, and and of course I got the answer. It depends on who you ask, and it kind of kind of maybe sounds like that's a little bit in the kosher and halal uh, world as well. But this has cleared up an awful lot. And I think this is going to answer uh, the overwhelming majority of the questions. So I really appreciate your time. And I'm happy if questions come in to have them passed along. I do have some publications that specifically deal with kosher and halal. And I'm happy if people write to me or through Phil or Francisco and uh, happy to pass them on. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Ragenstein. That we end this episode. Thank you a lot for listening. If you'd like to receive notifications on the new releases and the new episodes, please subscribe at www.meetspad.com. If you're a small and mid-sized meat processor and you have concerns or questions about a certain topic, 
related to to meat science and meat processing, please email us at info at meatspot.com. Thank you, and see you the next time.